0: It is so good to hear people singing again. It is just, oof, I could've, we could have just done that, and I would have been just so happy. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to actually, I wanted to, to start um, with just a note about the, uh, the sage here. I don't know if you can see, if you can see the brown. The brown is all that we had to work with before, um, minus a spot where there was two chairs on either side and a short little wall. And I thought, like, I didn't realize just how small this stage was before, but I thought now that I got all this room, I'm going to have to learn how to do like a backflip or something just to, to add some empathy. I won't try today because I've never tried, but I've got to learn some, some cool tricks for all this space. Um, yeah, that's right. So this is a, a, the, we, we ended our series in Jeremiah last week, and it was exciting to, to start, it's exciting to start a new series and kind of a new moment here. And this is a, a short little series, uh, and I've actually always wanted to do this series, and just never felt like it was the right spot to do it. Uh, this series, I actually had about six or seven weeks worth that I want to do. Uh, but I'm away all of August, and we only have three weeks, so three weeks is what we're going to get. And so I'll probably do maybe the other half of this series at some point. But this three-week series is called Weird Bible Stories. And this is where we're going to look at the weird, the strange, the downright, the confusing, the stuff where we go, what, when we read it. The stuff that just doesn't make sense. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, uh, Like what what are you talking about Luke weird Bible stories? Maybe you are much more spiritual than I and maybe you've never read a Bible story and gone hmm That's weird, but I have there's quite a few where I think if you just read the words on the page If you read it like you're just reading a story and you read the words that are there Sometimes you get to parts and you just go What well that doesn't make any sense or you just go? "Huh, Okay And I want to look at a couple of those now It was hard to pick some of my favorites, uh, and we're not actually going to do my very favorite one uh, Because I want to do it another time But I had to pick a couple of what these are and I want to look at those because I think what happens sometimes is in the church We come across a really weird story like this, and we don't know what to do with it And so we go well, it's in the Bible, and you're not allowed to ask questions So nothing to see here move on You just gloss over to the next part Right? We read it almost like we read in genealogy. We read it and go, yeah, that's nice, nice. Okay, next part. Like, where does Jesus say something cool here, right? And so we just kind of gloss over what I think are these really weird, st- weird stories. And I think sometimes we even try to, like a crime scene detective, I think we try to detour people away from them, right? We, we want to push people away from it, hoping no one will stop for a second and go, well, that, that just doesn't make any sense. I have questions about that, right? Or the other response that we sometimes do to that is we try to explain it all away. We try to explain away all the weirdness or the confusingness of it, right? When we get to a miracle that doesn't make sense, when we go, well, it's just a miracle and you're not allowed to ask questions, so no questions. And, you know, what the author actually really meant by that is if you read the original Greek or Hebrew, what they, they said this, but what they really meant was this. And we try to explain away the miracle. You know, what, you know Paul said this, and it wasn't so much this, but what he actually meant was this, And I think when we do that, we try to explain it away, it detracts from all the, the, the coolness and the inspiring nature and the beautiful and the, and the stuff that just goes, well, hold on a second. It makes you stop and think and, and pause in awe and in wonder. And some of those confusing Bible stories are some of the most beautiful and also some of the most just outright make you think what is going on. And so I think it's important to, to not just explain it away and not just gloss over it, but to, to honestly read it and look at it with, with fresh and open eyes and read it for what he says. And so we're going to do one that I think is a good intro for weird Bible stories. And I'm going to read it. It's uh, 2 Kings 6, 1-7. to 7. The words will be up on the, uh, on the uh, screens for you, or you can use a few Bibles, which was the first time they've been there and I've been able to say that. So uh, I'm going to read 2 Kings 6, 1-7. to 7. And so it says, The company of the prophet said the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you, it's just too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan, where each of us will get a pole and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, go. And then one of them said, well, won't you please come with your servants? Won't you please come with us? I will, Elisha replied. And so he went with them. And they went to the Jordan, they began to cut down trees. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe had fell into the water. Oh no, my lord, he cried out, it was borrowed. And the man of God asked, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and he threw it there and he made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Now, some of you who grew up going to Sunday school, Bible study, will undoubtedly be familiar with this story. And if not the whole story and looking at the whole story, you will at least be familiar with the main character. So we'll do a little bit of background about the main character first. Now, it's important to look at Elisha for who he is. It's important to make sure you also distinguish between Elisha and Elijah, because they are two different people. And I will for sure say the wrong one today because I've been talking to Elijah for the last nine months. So there are two different prophets here. Now, Elijah was known for being a very on-fire prophet. He was very on-fire. He was constantly in direct conflict against evil and in idols. He was very much an outspoken kind of prophet. He was doing things like, like there's that story where he calls down fire from heaven onto an altar that he's just soaked wet. And he calls out like hundreds of prophets all at once. And he directly rebukes kings and queens to their face with, with almost like this no fear. He's very known for doing that. And Elisha did do some stuff with kings and queens as well, but Elisha was more known as the prophet who mostly spent his time in ministry in compassionate care for people. He did, they both did some amazing miracles, Elijah and Elisha, and this here is one of the miracles that Elisha did. This story is one of the more simple miracles that Elisha did. He did other stuff, like he parted the Jordan River so that the people could cross. He he cursed children so that bears would come out and eat them, which, side note, that is my favorite Bible story, and we won't get into that one. He did other cool stuff, too, like he fixed a really bad well that nobody could drink from. He fed hundreds of people with only 20 loaves of bread. He did some amazing miracles. And so this is more on the simple scale of miracles that he did. But it is just a weird story. It's so a little background context of what's going on right here. So we know who Elisha is, but what's going on? At this point, Elisha is head of the school of prophets. Now, if you want to think about what that means in today's term, think like a Bible college or a seminary. People are going and training to become prophets. And, and so people would come and learn, and they would learn from Elisha. Now, Elisha had a learned from Elijah. He was his, Elijah was his mentor, and so Elisha was the successor. And so he's heading up the school, actually, right now. And the number of the school has grown, which is great news. It's always great when the, the number of something has grown, you outgrow your space. And so the people say to Elisha, they say, hey, we're out of space here. Like, we've got no space in this meeting room. Let's go to the river. Let's go build a bigger location. And so they go down to the river, and the reason they go to the river is because right next to the river would have been the big, beautiful trees, plentiful trees, where they they could chop all those down. Are you coming up to the sermon? (laughs) So they could chop all those down, and, and they would have a lot of wood to build with then. And so in the middle of this building process, one of the guys is chopping wood, and the axe head flies off the handle, and it lands in the river. And now, I mean, it's actually not that weird yet. Like, it sounds a bit weird, but given the context of where we are, it's actually not that weird. Like, things, that happens. Things, things break. Things like that happen. Like, when Ryan and Andrew and myself were renovating the washroom at the Parsonage, I had this old two-pound sledgehammer my dad had given me, and I was swinging it and breaking up the floor, and I'm swinging and swinging and At one point, the whole two-pound hammer, the head comes flying off and goes across the room. Now, it didn't land in a river, and it didn't hit Andrew or Ryan, so that's good news. But, I mean, things like that, tools break. They happen. And 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 what happens that's weird though is after the axe head comes flying off This is where all the weird stuff happens And so we're gonna look at those parts and we're gonna look at three parts of the story And we're gonna see what can we do with this? How do we apply this at all in our lives as the first thing? I want to look at the first part of the story that I want to look at is the lost axe the lost axe And so this part of the story actually makes me laugh if you think about it for a second We are in the middle of a stage renovation and so, so all week, Rob Cools has been here, and Fred has been here. There have been electricians coming and going, and plumbers coming and going. There was a guy who was here with a vacuum, and cleaning, and doing all kinds of dusting. And the flooring guy has coming and going. So all these tradespeople have been coming and going. And what I didn't notice in that list of people doing the stage renovation, was a whole bunch of local pastors being part of that build. Now, just picture for a second if when we built churches, we just sent all the seminary students, all the Bible college students, and all the local pastors, and we just gave them a bunch of tools and be like, all right, here you go, guys, build us a church. I mean, the sight of my friend Pastor Victor with a nail gun or a saw makes me both very afraid but also laugh at the same time. And I personally know that there are some students that I went to seminary with that couldn't tell you the difference between a hammer, an impact driver, and a table saw if their life depended on it. And so, we don't have prophets or pastors or worship pastors building our churches now, but the reality is that actually back then, these people that were learning at the school would have had at least a basic concept or understanding about how to build. They would have been, you know, they might not have been master carpenters, and they wouldn't necessarily have built giant cathedrals, but in this day, people were fairly familiar with using basic tools to build for your own things. Uh, They might not have been tradesmen, but they would have had the basics, for say. And so they kind of know what they're doing here. So they're not all, you know, inexperienced dudes that have, this is the first time with an axe head. They they kind of know what they're doing. And so back to this axe head. The guy is swinging it, and he kind of knows what he's doing. He's probably swung an axe before, and he feels it fly right off the handle and land right in the river. Now, today, that wouldn't be a problem, because if I'm chopping down a tree, and my axe head lands in the river, I'm going to go to Home Depot, and for $22, I'm going to buy another one and be like, well, we lost one, no big deal. But back then iron tools were a bit more valuable it would have been a handcrafted tool It would have been a resource that you couldn't necessarily just go to Home Depot and pick up a brand new one right away It would have probably been worth a good amount and there wouldn't have just been shelves lining them up like there wouldn't have been You know Josiah's Home Depot in the middle of Jerusalem where he can walk in and pick out any tool He wants he borrowed one because the fact was that they were probably scarce and not everyone had one but even still with all that We've all lost stuff. I mean, it happens, right? That's not necessarily that weird yet. We've all lost things. Losing stuff happens. Losing things is a part of life. This winter, I was, I was shoveling the, the back path behind the house, and so I'm shoveling away, and it had been a few days, and so I'm shoveling, I'm shoveling, and I shovel, and I look, and there's something blue sticking out of the ground right about where I'm about to shovel. And so I lean down, and I grab it, and it's my wallet. <laughs> And I hadn't left the house in about two weeks, so I know I hadn't used it. And so I have no idea how long my wallet had been sitting in the snowbank for, but truthfully, I didn't even know it was missing. It was missing, and I'd lost it, and I didn't even know. I, I recently actually lost a pair of my favorite pink sunglasses. Now, on this note, I'm not convinced they're actually lost yet, because Janice hates them so much that I wouldn't be surprised if they were actually in the middle of the river over at Shades Mills, and she had just placed them there for me. But but losing stuff happens. I'm sure you've all lost stuff. Maybe your car keys or your wallet or your glasses or something. You've probably lost something. But it's not just physical things that we lose in life, is it? We lose other stuff too. We lose things that aren't physical. We lose things like relationships. We lose relationships, especially if we don't care for the people in them. We lose peace in our lives if we aren't willing to act in loving and compassionate and graceful ways. We lose hope. When all we focus is all the negative and and the garbage and and crap around us, we lose hope in our lives. And those things are not exactly easy to run to Home Depot and replace. And the first thing this lost axe makes me think of is that loss is an unfortunate part of life that we all understand. We lose loved ones, we lose time, we lose our health, one day we might even begin to lose our memories. And loss is an unfortunate but very real part of what it means to be a human in a broken world. But when we read this story, and we read about this guy who lost his axe, we see that he feels much worse than simply losing an axe, because we actually uncover that this axe wasn't his. And so he feels bad because he's lost an axe, but he feels even worse because he's lost an axe that was not his. It was borrowed. And that makes it worse. Have you ever borrowed something from someone and lost it? Or worse, borrowed something from someone and broken it. It just, it just feels awful. If it's your own and you've broken it, well, it might feel sad. You're like, well, I've broken that. I've got to replace it. But there's just something even more awful about this feeling of I've borrowed something and it wasn't even mine and I've lost it or I've broken it. Because you know that not, you've, you've not only lost a thing, but now you've caused emotional pain or distress or upset at the very least to someone else because of your error, because of your loss. And a commentator was looking at this, and he pointed out that for some reason, losing something that belongs to someone else hurts us more than if that thing was our own. And he made that connection, and he says, what does that do for us if we in the church recognize that everything we have is from God? Everything we have is borrowed. And he says, maybe, would that mean that we maybe treat our loved ones differently? Would we maybe treat our relationships differently? Would we maybe treat the very seconds of our days differently? If we knew that all of those very things were borrowed from God and not ours, maybe we would be a little more scared to lose them and we would treat them differently. So that's the first thing that this story makes me think of when we look at that lost axe. Now the second thing that this story makes me think of is is what one pastor calls the ask, but I think that's a bad name, so I'm gonna rename it the lacking ask. And because if you read this story, there is no ask. There's no ask in this story. The fella chopping the tree, and he's chop, chop, chopping away, head comes flying off, and you can picture this in your head. He turns around, you can just see it. He turns around and goes to Elisha and he's like, oh no, man, that was a borrowed axe. Like that's borrowed. Right, And you could probably see the panic on his face, but what you don't hear or see him saying is, oh, Elisha, uh, please fix this for me. Please do a miracle here, or, or please do something about it, or can you help me solve this situation? He never asks Elisha for help. He just simply says, oh, no. He simply states his problem and his dismay over the problem, and that's it. But what's cool is that even though this guy just says, oh, no, I've lost this ax, Elisha is already prepared to do something about it, right? He's already ready to do something in the situation. And that reminds me of exactly how it is with God sometimes, right? Sometimes we don't go to God with our problems, do we? If we are honest, a lot of us are fairly stubborn individuals. And we think, I can handle this one myself. I can can do this problem myself. I can fix this thing myself. And we don't want to go to God asking for help with every single situation or problem in our lives. So we think, well, I'll do this one myself or we think that maybe this problem is too small, or or this issue is too insignificant, and so we just struggle all alone. But what I think this part of the story shows us, and if we just go to God with our problems, sometimes that's enough. Just going to God with our problems is sometimes enough. This guy didn't go to Elisha begging for help. He just went to this man of God. He didn't say, please do a miracle and fix this, please, please, please. He simply said, oh no, I've lost this ax. He showed his dismay. And immediately Elisha acted and I've noticed in life that that is exactly how God acts sometimes see we just hired here at the church Uh, we hired for two positions we hired Pastor John and Pastor Janelle but then we also hired five summer students and one of those summer students had to start earlier as he was the camps planning director Cam Faber who many of us know and so he started about six weeks earlier but the whole hiring process from the outside looked like wow that was very smoothly run the way everything worked but it was not it was hectic It was at times some of the most stressful thing that happened over the last year and a half. We had actually made a job offer to one individual for the role of youth and family pastor. And he had accepted the role, and we actually had a start date, and he was supposed to come. But then he didn't show up. He just didn't come. And he didn't tell us for a few days. We were messaging saying, where are you? Like, what's going on? And he didn't tell us he wasn't coming. And so then all of a sudden when he said, I'm not coming anymore after a few days, we started to panic. Because we had spent so much time interviewing candidates. We had spent so much time getting things ready. And the camps were starting so soon that we were in this situation where we're, we're stuck. And we were not sure what to do. We had no idea how we were going to get someone in time to start to plan all these camps. And I remember sitting in my office one day and I was stressing. i thinking, how are we going to get this done? How are we going to redo all these interviews? That took weeks and weeks to do all of these. And I said, even if we can do it, it doesn't give us enough time to start camps. And I was just stressing and stressing. And all of a sudden, it just hit me to just stop. Just stop. Stop trying to stress and handle this all on your own. Just, just Luke, shut up for a minute and just pray. And so I did. I just stopped, and I just, I just stopped freaking out about it and fretting. And I, I remember just saying, my prayer was so simple. I just remember saying to God, like, hey, God, we had what we thought was an awesome plan. We thought we had everything lined up. We thought we had it sorted. It looked set, and everything fell apart. And I have no solutions, and I have no idea, and it seems like everything is ruined, and we're done. I don't know what to do. And that's it. And I just said, I'm leaving it here. I'm leaving it with you, God. I'm just leaving it here. And within a couple days, we had hired a planning director to start our camp. We had five interviews lined up for our five summer spots. And we even had a few potential leads for youth and family pastor. And one of those who we ended up hiring was Janelle. And I can tell you that God had plans from the beginning to have Janelle here. Even if we had to take the long way around to get here, I could see now that God was working in it. And this all reminded me about 1 Peter 5-7, where he says, give all your worries and all your cares to God. Because he cares about you. See, all I did there was I was worried and I was stressed and I was freaking out. So I said, I'm just giving this to you. God, I know you care about me, so I'm giving it all over to you. And I'm just going to give it up to you. It's like the guy whose axe head came flying off, right? He just turns to Elisha and he says, oh, no, like this just happened. And I think that in life, we're invited to turn to God and say, oh, no, God, like, God, this just happened. This just happened and it is not good, right? And I think that God loves us. And I think that if we believe God loves us, then we need to believe when, when, when crap hits the fan and our life seems like it's falling apart or our axe head comes flying off and we have no idea what to do with it, that we can just hand it over to God and trust that he's going to be involved in whatever way is best. Now, it might not be the easiest way. It might not be the prettiest way. And it might not be the way that seemed the best for you when you were playing it out. But it's God's way. And so I can say that it might not look like it at the time, but it is the best way. And so back to the story now, the final part of the story. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird the looking answer or the looked for answer. See, Elisha turns to the guy, or sorry, listens to the guy. The guy complains and he says, and then he whines or whatever, and he says, oh no, like it's fallen off. My axe said it fell in the river. It was borrowed. And Elisha looks over and he says, where where did it land? And the guy looks to the spot and he says, well, like right over there. It landed right over there. Right? And so this is the weird part. Elisha goes and he cuts a stick. I don't know how big the stick was, maybe it was this big, who knows. He cuts a stick down, and he takes the stick, and he throws it in the water. And then this is the weird part. He says to the guy, lift it out. And this is so weird. And we know why the story is weird. And it's weird because axe heads don't float. Metal axe heads, solid metal objects, do not float. It's still weird to me that boats float, given that they're made of metal, but I understand there's air and all kinds of stuff and science, but I don't think there's a lot of science behind an axe head deciding to float all of a sudden. And so it's weird that he just throws a stick in and this axe head floats. And the King James is even better. If you read the King James, it says the axe head swam. And I like that image. This is axe head just swimming to the surface. Now, now when we look at this story and the weirdness of it, there's some theories about how it happened. Now, one theory says that Elisha didn't really throw a stick. He didn't really just throw a stick in there. But what he really did was he caught a stick, and it was a nice long one, and he took that stick, kind of like a lever. And from the shore, he poked it into the the lake, or into the river there, and he kind of figured out where the hole in the axe head was. Don't know how he saw through a murky river, but he figured out where the hole was, and because things are lighter underwater, he, he was able to lift it to the surface of the water. But then when he got it to the surface, he couldn't lift it out because it's heavier now. And so he kind of brought it over to the side and he said to his friend, like, lift it out. You get it now. Like, I got it this far. And I mean, that's a nice theory, only it doesn't make sense at all with what's written down. It's, it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he threw a stick in. It doesn't say he poked around with a stick for an hour and then he finally found it. Like, wow, what luck. The Bible says he threw a stick in and the axe head swam or the axe head floated. And so I think if, if, if Elisha had been rooting around and just miraculously found it, that's still a great story. Like, wow, he, he caught a stick and he found it in the bottom of the river. Wow, Elisha's great. It's still a great story. And I think they would have written something a little bit closer to that. And so I think that theory, while it's nice, Is probably not what happened now another great theory that's a little bit more reminiscent of Monty Python and the Holy Grail is they say this theory says that the reason that Elisha threw the stick in is because a stick floats and so by throwing in a stick the the floating property of the stick was then transferred to the axe head so he threw in a stick and because sticks float and what else floats ducks and little rocks and whatever else right so he throws in a stick and the stick floats and so then the stick sinks and the axe head now can float. And so the, the, the properties of floating have transferred. And that theory is super cool, but why? Because it doesn't make it any less miraculous. It doesn't make the miracle any less a miracle. It actually makes it a little bit more complicated. Like, I mean, if I drop my phone in while I'm paddleboarding, I don't just throw my hat quickly into the river. I'm like, ah, well, the hat floats, so now the hat will sink and the phone comes to the top, right? Like, it's still a miracle. If I did that, I would still come back and say, guys, I did a miracle. And so I don't understand that theory. I think it is just giving a, a complicated answer to an already miraculous event. And so what my resolution here is, and that this was simply a miracle. There's no other way around. He didn't fiddle around, he didn't just get lucky. He simply threw a stick in and a miracle happened. And the reason I can say that is because Elisha did a lot of miracles. And this is one of the more simpler of the miracles. It seems a bit more simple. And so I'm going to write this and say that this is just a miracle. We don't have to explain it away. We don't have to find a way to make this plausible or possible. It is totally okay to just simply say, that is miraculous and mysterious. And we don't know how it's possible, but it's a miracle. And so therefore, that's what we call it. It's extraordinary. It's not normal behavior. And that's okay. We can read it as a miracle because miraculous is just that, it's miraculous. But I think we have to be honest and say, we know that that's not normal behavior. We know that accents don't normally float. We know that this is something extraordinary. We acknowledge that and we just have a miraculous God. But I want to point out about this answer or about the, the, the answer here, the looking answer, is who gets the credit, right? Who gets the credit in the story? When we look at the story, One of the first things we see Elisha do is he actually gets the guy involved in the solution whose problem it was, right? He says to the guy, he says, where? Where did the ax head fall in? And the guy says, over there. And then so Elisha throws a stick in and he says to the guy, he says, pick it up. He says, lift it out, right? He says, go get it. And I like that because I think sometimes when we have a really big problem, we don't want to be involved in the solutions that God gives us. We wanna just hand it off and say, okay, God, I'll be over here, call me when you're done, right? And I think it's important we can hand it off to God, but I think we expect to just walk away like a 1-800-GOT-JUNK commercial and point and be like, ah, miracle over there, right? I don't think that that's how God works, right? In my earlier story about hiring here at the church, I mean, God's solution was a great solution to our problem. Getting Janelle here was amazing, and it worked out exactly the way we needed it. And so I know God was involved in that situation, and we handed it off to him and let him do it, but we still had a part to play. There were many, many, many more hours spent on Zoom interviews, spent on meetings with the board members. Ultimately, it was a lot of work, and we got to be involved with it, but God was still the one doing all the heavy lifting. And I think sometimes we look at God, and we look at Him like we do a genie, right? We look at it like Aladdin. We think that we just rub the magic bottle or like maybe maybe the magic bible because we're in a church we rub this magic bible and we just wish and it'll happen right god god pops out and says what you wish anything is your command and do it and, and poof it happens and that's not how god works god's not a magical genie i found more often than not that in god's solutions in our lives he invites us to be part of those solutions and i think he does that because that's how we learn that's how we learn in that process I have friends often that will say, Luke, you know, can you fix my bike? I know you don't work as a bike tech anymore, but my bike's broken, can you fix it? And I only have one rule for it. The rule is that they have to help me fix it. The rule is, is, that, is that I'll do it the first little bit, I'll do the first maybe couple of times, but then they're going to do it while I watch. And they have to be part of the solution, and that way they can learn. If they just keep bringing me to the bike and dropping it off, I'll be able to fix it every time, but they've learned nothing. And so I think sometimes like that, God is doing the work, God is doing the solution, or he's, he's solving the problem, but we're invited to be part of it, and He wants us to have a part in it. I think He invites us into the solution, and, and so the next time we can learn from it. And the second thing, when we look at who gets the credit, is who do we ascribe the credit to immediately? I think when we read this story, we immediately go, Elisha. Right? We go, wow, look at Elisha. Look, look how powerful of a prophet he was. Like, he parted the Jordan River, and he was making metal objects flow out of the river. Like, wow. Only that's not exactly true. Right? All Elisha did in the story was go, where? And he threw a stick in there. Right? I mean, <laughs> Elisha's involvement in this story is fairly minimal here. He cut a stick and chucked it in the water. I mean, I can do that. I think all of us can do that. In this story, we think, I think we give credit to Elisha, but all he did was chuck a stick, and it was God who did the miracle. Right? It was God who did the heavy lifting here. It was God who performed the miraculous. He did it through Elisha, and he did it through Elisha chucking a stick in the water, but it was God who did the heavy lifting. And again, I think that shows me that God can do miracles even through somebody simple like me, and through people simple like you. God can do miracles through us. God will do the hard parts. I think God does all the heavy lifting, but we get to be part of that. We get to be part of the miraculous, part of what He's doing. Recently, I got an email from a pastor who's, who's running uh, some sort of a magazine thing now, and he says, you know, Luke, I'd love to have a chat with you uh, because I've seen how well your church is doing recently. I've seen all the things you guys are doing online, and it seems like you have really just prospered during this pandemic. And I want to know, like, what was your plan? How did you do this? How did you, how did you navigate this in this virtual world? And I sent a message back, and I was kind of laughing, and I said, like, I'll happily talk with you but it's not gonna be a great conversation. I don't don't have a lot of answers here. Uh, My answer is simply, I didn't do anything. I simply let God keep doing what he was doing here. I got to come alongside the process of what God was doing. I got to be part of what he was doing, but it was God who did all the things that were happening here. I just got to come along and be part of it. It's God who does the heavy lifting, and we get to be part of the miracle, but God does the heavy lifting, and because he does the heavy lifting, he gets all the glory. We get to be part of the process, but that glory is not ours. That glory is not mine. That glory is God's. And so now you might be finally asking, cool, how do we apply this in our lives? It's a great story. How do we apply these things in our lives? How does this matter today or tomorrow or Tuesday? And I think actually we can apply this story in very, or three very different and very unique ways. The first is that we can recognize we've all lost stuff in life. I think we would all say that. We've lost some physical things, but of course I mean more than just the physical things. I mean those things that we can't replace at Home Depot. And if this pandemic has taught me anything, it's that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. And in light of this story, I think we can live with a better recognition that everything we have today is borrowed everything we have today is borrowed. It's all God's. It's not mine, it's God's. And so we can live with that better recognition of everything we have is borrowed and so I'm going to care for all that I have. We can live like everything we have is a borrowed axe head. Our time, our loved ones, if we live with that idea that it's not mine but it's God's, maybe we'll care for it more. Maybe we'll treat it better. Second thing I think we can learn is that we can learn we can go to God with anything. We we can go to God with anything. We need to stop trying to do things all on our own. And sometimes it might seem like we're just whining or complaining about the situation. But I think sometimes it's totally okay to whine or complain a little bit. I mean, of course, that can't be all we do. But I think at times we are invited to complain or whine. And if we want to get really deeply theological, we can say we're lamenting. Right? And so I think it is okay to do that. I think it's okay to say sometimes in life things suck. We can say, you know what? God... What the situation is right now, this sucks, and I feel really sucky and icky, and I don't like it at all, and I feel like this is just awful, and I think it's okay to go to God and say that, and it's okay to do that, to give everything to God, the big things, but especially the small things, because with God there's no such thing as small things. He actually cares about all those little details of your life. He cares about those things that no one else cares about. I mean, we have a God who took the time to count the numbers of hairs on your head. And some of us have less hair on our head these days than others. But that is still a pretty amazing and loving thing to do. And so finally, the third thing, I think we learn that God invites us to come alongside what He's doing. But we have to remember that He is the one doing it. We don't see Elisha running around after the story and being like, guys, did you see how amazing that was? Do you see how awesome I am? I am the best prophet ever. No wonder I'm the boss, right? I am seriously the most powerful, guys. Did you see that? I lifted a whole ax head. It floated. We don't see him doing that because Elisha doesn't take the glory for himself. Elisha knows God gets the glory. God gets the credit in this story and in our lives. Over the past 17 months, I have been reminded over and over and over of how amazing and faithful and blessing God is. God has blessed and cared for us here at this church over and over and over in so many ways through this pandemic, and I keep seeing how good God is. And I think we just have to remember that, that it's God who does all that heavy lifting. But we're just imparted, we are invited to be part of what He's doing. And so there you have it, three life lessons from a very weird Bible story about a floating stick and a swimming axe head. And I think that there are lessons for us in all the weird Bible stories that we're going to look at, and we just have to read them and see what God might be saying amidst them. Let's pray. God, thank you for these weird Bible stories. God, thank you for the stories that we know off by heart and we talk about all the time. But God, thank you for stories like this that sometimes perhaps we gloss over, we look at, we have no idea what to do with. God, would you give us fresh eyes to read and to see and to hear? Would you help us to understand what you're saying in these words does, and how we can apply these things to our life? God, we thank you so much once again for all you have done for us here in our lives, but also at the church. God, would you can just continue to bless us in this place? Would you help us to reach out and reach the community, the people around us, and to just keep being a loving presence in their lives? We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.